You were listening to the third and final episode of Ghosts of Christmas Past, a special presented by Serial Sisters. I'm Tess. And I'm Jamie. Today, Tess takes us to Christmas of 1959 in the hills of Los Angeles. This is Nightmare on Glendower. Not a lot of crimes are remembered by their exact address, but anyone who is familiar with what has been known as the Los Feliz Murder Mansion knows 2475 Glendower Place. This beautiful Spanish-style house was built in 1925 and designed by famous architect Harry Weiner. It was owned for a time in the 1930s by Frederick Zelnick, who was a well-known director at the time, playing a large part in the production of German silent films. The three-story house is quite large, just over 5,000 square feet. Tiled entrance, glass observatory, a third-story ballroom with a bar, a spiral staircase, five bedrooms, multiple fireplaces. It's a place you'd like to live. It sits up on a hill in the trendy Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles and has sweeping views of the city. In the 1950s, the home was purchased by Dr. Harold and Lillian Perelson, who lived there with their three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel. Dr. Perelson and Lillian were both second-generation Jewish immigrants. Lillian was beautiful. She was a doting mother and a loving wife. Dr. Perelson was very well respected in both his community and by his colleagues. He served on the Board of Surgeons at three major hospitals in the area, L.A. County General, Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, and Santa Fe Hospital of Los Angeles. However, he didn't just practice medicine. He was also assistant head of cardiology and a professor at USC School of Medicine. He traveled frequently as a keynote speaker, and as if he wasn't busy enough, he also invented a special medical syringe similar to what you see today. So, Jamie, you know, at the hospitals, you've probably seen the glass tubes where they inject the syringe and pull it out. Yeah, like, are you talking about for a shot? Yeah, so he somehow, I'm not sure if that's actually his invention that went to the market. I'm not sure if his exact patent went to the market, but it's similar to what you see today where you put the syringe into the bottle and extract it and put it into the vein without the the medication ever actually touching the air. Got it. I think he must have had to have done something important because that house sounds pretty incredible. <laughs> he wasn't a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> or or he was a more successful one than us. Right. Everything seemed to be going really well for the Perelson family. There was no reason to suspect otherwise. On December 6th, 1959, Dr. Perelson came home from a long day of work. He entered this home, his grand, beautiful home, and was greeted by the smell of dinner cooking in the oven. He poured himself a drink and finally sat down in his chair to relax. He watched as Lillian wrapped Christmas presents and the kids chit-chatted about their day at school. By then, Judy, the oldest, was 18 years old, Joel was 13, and the youngest, Debbie, was 11. And just an aside, I mentioned that Lillian and Harold were 
Jewish immigrants, but they had recently in recent years started doing some traditional Christmas type stuff, you know, so they put up a tree and they would do the presents and things like that. So, and I'm wondering if part of that was because they had kids who were, you know, in the public school system and participating in things like that. Right. The family had dinner together, as was customary, and then sat around to watch a little TV together. After a little bit, the oldest daughter, Judy, decided she was ready to go up to her room, and Lillian put the other two, Joel and Debbie, to bed. Lillian and Harold then sat together for a short while longer before Lillian decided to go on up to bed herself. It had been such a lovely, yet routine evening, but evil was looming at 2475 Glendower evil that no one saw coming. With the rest of his family in bed, Dr. Harold Perelson spent the rest of the evening reading. He read until around 4.30 in the morning, and that's when he decided to go to his tool chest and grab a ball-peen hammer. A tight grip on the handle, he walked slowly to the master bedroom and stood quietly watching Lillian sleep. Then he did the unthinkable. He began bludgeoning his wife about the face and head over and over and over until all signs of life in her were gone. Didn't see that coming. Did not see that coming. Yes. I mean, you're just sitting around in your beautiful mansion, watching TV, wrapping presents. What happened? We'll see. When he finished with Lillian, he turned and walked toward Judy's room. Judy, who was already awakened by the screams of her mother, was startled to find her father in her bedroom doorway covered in blood. With the hammer still in hand, he took a violent swing at Judy. It struck her, but it did not knock her out. She managed to escape past him, out of the house, into another home nearby where they called for help. By now, both Joel and Debbie were awake. Debbie walked out of her bedroom to find her father covered in blood, just as Judy had minutes before. But rather than attacking 11-year-old Debbie, he looked at her and simply said, Go back to bed, sweetheart. This is just a nightmare. What? Right. And, I mean, do you buy that? Or did he really think that was going to work? Or was he even really in his right mind at this point? I don't know. It, it kind of reminds me of the Lawson family that we talked about last week. You know, he spared one of his children as well. That's interesting that you say that, and that's going to come up again in just a little bit. Okay. Dr. Perelson then took an abundance of barbiturates, something he would easily have access to as a medical doctor, and died minutes later next to the lifeless body of his wife, Lillian. Both Harold and Lillian were dead, Lillian only 42 years old, and Harold only 50. Judy survived the attack but was treated at a nearby hospital for potential skull fractures. Joel and Debbie were unharmed. After that, horrifying night, it's rumored that the children changed their names and moved to live with relatives. Not much is known about their lives following this tragedy, and maybe it's for the best. The home on Glendower has never been left at peace since this, and the story of the Perelson family murder-suicide continues to echo through time. So, why? 
what happened and so so many want to know what went horribly wrong that evening in december 61 years ago and investigations into this murder uncovered a few troubling clues for instance dr harold perelson had been reading that evening like i said and when they were going through the house they found a copy of dante's divine comedy um, and it was open to a specific passage and this is what he had been reading. And that passage says, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward path had been lost. There were also signs of financial difficulties. And this was surprising to me. But you never know what's going on behind closed doors. So this wonderful invention that uh, Dr. Perelson had come up with, as it turns out, he had partnered with a man uh, by the name of Edward Shustak. And he, Dr. Perelson had come, come up with the idea and he partnered with this Edward Shustak guy. I don't, I think maybe he was helping to finance it and market it. And the agreement was that they were gonna split the proceeds. Well, instead, Shustak decides he's just gonna run away with this idea and he never, he just cut Dr. Perelson out completely. So not only did Dr. Perelson lose out on potential earnings from that, he spent years and years and years in, in the courts trying to fight this. It, it never went anywhere. So he spent a lot of money in the courts, you know, so essentially he lost money on this endeavor. And mm, that's terrible. I know. And... <sighs> I would like to know more about this shoe stuck guy and, and kind of what, where this went. I would like to know where this invention went. Did he get credit for it? Did he get money for it? Or did it just kind of crumble away? And I don't know, but right. shortly after all of this, Judy and Debbie were involved in a motor vehicle accident. I don't think it was super serious, but I guess it was enough that Dr. Perelson tried to sue the other driver. And, I, and that might've just been a desperate attempt to, kind of recover some of the financial losses he had had you know with the the invention and that kind of falling through the cracks yeah that's what I was gonna say I wondered if that was legitimate or not so we really don't know I guess we don't know and I mean he was awarded money but it was just enough to cover like the cost of the minor medical treatment that they received so it didn't go I think where he had hoped you know Got getting it. They also found a letter that Judy had written to an aunt that basically was telling her aunt that her family was on a financial merry-go-round. Those were her words. And that she was even contemplating getting a job to help the family out, which to us were like, okay, good. <laughs> but when you grow up in a well-to-do family, this living in this mansion and living this lifestyle, it wasn't probably on the forefront of her mind that she was going to have to work in order to help support her family. Right. Well, and like you and I both had jobs when we were younger, but I'm, sh I'm sure you're like me, like when I went to college and had friends from like very different backgrounds and things like that. Some of them thought it was odd that I had even had a job in high school. Like they had never worked before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, same here. And Judy was 18. So of course she could do that, but you know, I don't think that was, her 
planned right out of high Judy school. Judy didn't want to, and I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. Well, they even say they found this letter. It had, it was written. I guess it hadn't been sent to this aunt yet, and it was in her sports car. Oh. So, you know, Judy wasn't probably prepared to get her hands dirty. <laughs> That's right. I don't blame you, Judy. Yeah. <laughs> so, some said... Also, at the time that Dr. Perelson was not well, that he was just under tremendous pressure professionally and had experienced cardiac episodes. Now, as it turns out, and I don't know the details, but it was uncovered that these were not cardiac episodes, that he had actually attempted suicide on a couple occasions and his family had been somewhat worried about him. And I think this is probably something that the family kept tight to themselves uh, I don't think it was like well known but it was uncovered that he did have some depression and mental health issues well and this is in the 50s too when there was more of a stigma around mental health like I don't I'm sure that people didn't talk about mental health issues as much at that time either yeah that's true you're right it was a different time and if also if you're like this outstanding well-respected part of your community and and well-known professionally you're much less likely to talk about it. Exactly. So that also, you've mentioned the loss in family. And I wanted to circle back to that because there was also a theory that he just recognized that their family was going to fall into financial ruin and that in his mind, it was better off for them to die and not have to live through that almost like a mercy killing so to speak and that was a theory that circled back if you guys listened to episode two of ghost of christmas past that was a theory with the lawson family right mm -hmm. and like you said with the lawson family and i don't want to give it away if you haven't heard it all but not all of the family members were murdered and that is what right, people I was, are. I was going to say he spared one of his children as well. Right. So what was it? I mean, he clearly had plans to kill Judy. And when she escaped and he had the opportunity to kill Debbie and Joel, why did he change his mind? Or did, had he planned all along to only kill Lillian and Judy? Right. I mean, of course, I guess we'll never know. But, you know, I think, could it have been about life insurance? Was it that, you know, he thought that their deaths would leave enough for the remaining two children or, or you know, something like that? Right. But it sounds like he probably had already had the plans to commit suicide, too, because he had enough of the barbiturates. It was like a combo of sedatives on hand. So it was like he just what calmly walked into his house that night, like any other day, made himself a cocktail, sat and chatted with the family, had dinner, knowing all along that this was going to happen. Or did he snap I, and he had like his suicide cocktail on hand for when the time came? You know what I mean? Or was it a situation where he had been thinking about it for a long time, like he just didn't see any other way? You know, and then it was just like a moment where it was like he had the, he had the, you know, it, it overtook him, like the desire to, because 
I want to be sensitive to people that have mental health issues. I don't mean to, you know, I know this conversation can be triggering, but I'll say that, you know, I think with suicide, it's often not one thing it's a culmination of things and so was it something that he had been thinking about like there's no way out of this situation financially and there's no way that I can provide for my family if I'm not here and it was something that he had been thinking about and slowly working up to and that was just the moment where it all culminated in death right and also similar to the Lawson family you know they were well known so going from being that well-known family with this reputation for doing well. And, and I think with the Lawson's, they had the business and things mm-hmm. and the farm to, I guess it's almost like publicly being, you know, people watching them go from one tier to, to one right. lower, you know, where, cause they didn't just kind of fly under the radar. I mean, they lived at this, you know, huge sprawling mansion on this hill in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. So like people were going to kind of, this was going to be a public display of ruin. And, you know, Judy was 18. If, if he had only killed himself and his wife, Judy, ultimately she was an adult and she would have been responsible for herself, I guess, at that point. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other two were children. And so they would still have an opportunity to be cared for by someone else and have an opportunity to live their lives. But maybe he thought without them that Judy really wouldn't, you know, she wasn't working, but she was an adult. And so maybe his thought process was that, she wouldn't have the same opportunity to be cared for um, if, you know, it's just a, just a thought. Right. Like she would just be on her own. Right. Yeah. Let me tell you a problem that I have with this. I mean, other than the obvious, this man is a doctor, right? He had the means to, he went peacefully um, Mm -hmm. himself, suicide by sedatives. Mm-hmm. And he had the means to, at a minimum, I mean, you know, how can I say this tactfully? But why such violence? Why such right. anger? If he really felt that 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 his family needed to die, and he had already had the means to go the way he went, why would he not do the same for his family? So anyway, the house. No one's lived in this house since. December 6, 1959. And in the 60s, the house was sold at auction to a couple who, and get this, they only used this house for storage. What? They never stayed in this house. They only came and went to drop things off or pull things out. And to make it even more bizarre, they left all of the Perelson's things exactly like they were the night that this murder suicide happened everything was untouched other than you know what investigators had rummaged through but it was basically preserved in time so there i've seen photos of it there are like 1950 spaghettios on the counter you see old like life magazines the wrapping paper from where lillian was wrapping gifts that night the plastic christmas tree the old furniture uh really strange just really strange. Okay, that is weird, but I will say I've recently so I've always had an interest in like abandoned malls and 
like abandoned amusement parks. Like I just find it fascinating how, you know, there's a story there, like where the, the structure remains and you know that this used to be a place that people spent a lot of time. And then it kind of just makes you wonder like what happened here that the place was just left as is, you know, not torn down, not sold, just left. And so, and, and I've recently found that there's a whole community of people, I, you know, I just thought this was a weird quirk interest that I had, but there's a whole community of people that call themselves urban explorers who go around looking for places just like what you're talking about. So I kind of think of it too, as like maybe they felt like they were preserving a part of the family's story. I mean, it's creepy, but you know, it could be a situation where they felt like they were doing the family um, some kind of a, I, I don't know, like maybe they thought of it as preserving the family history. Yeah, well, it's, it, it is really neat. And it, it does look like from the photos that they had just up and left, which I mean, we know that they didn't, but just the way that you said they respectfully just kind of left everything exactly where it was. And maybe they were like, we don't need this space. We'll leave their things as it is and just is it still there? I'd, I'd like to see it. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it has recently um, been gutted. So all of oh. the old things, it's no longer there. And it's someone began renovating it. And I'm torn on this because I would love to have left it in its original form and just kind of restored it that way. But my husband and I have been working on remodeling this house. There is something cool about taking something and and kind of fixing it up and updating it yeah but, give it a new life yeah give it a facelift <laughs> <laughs> but I was looking on Zillow the other night and it was actually for sale there's a sale pending on it right now and it says major price improvement motivated to sell so the house is still gutted as a matter of fact it's not even in its current state. It doesn't even qualify for a loan because it's of how it's structured right now, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of mid remodel. It, it just looks like someone was planning to do some serious renovations and change their mind or they ran out of money. And I will say, you know, I had mentioned earlier that like this house hasn't been left at peace since this time. There right. have been issues. This is a really nice neighborhood. And I mean, there are like actors and a lot of famous people live in this area. People are so interested in this house. People like you, Jamie. Yes. <laughs> that people, uh, the neighbors complain because people have just been on this property. So they'll have people kind of around this neighborhood lurking and snooping and things like that. So that could be a reason why, of course, there are rumors of supernatural you know as you I can imagine going to, yep i was going to say i could see someone getting the creeps there and wanting to sell it yes so uh right now like i say it's there's a sale pending and i am curious to see what happens with it if, if they're gonna actually follow through and fix it up like i said the neighbors have complained that no, nothing has been done with it. So it's just always right now kind of a site for trespassers and things like that. So I don't encourage anyone to go and visit. In fact, there are no trespassing signs there. So be respectful. Other people do live there in that neighborhood. But um, yeah, and I will say as far as like the urban exploring thing goes that 
you know, anyone who, who's doing this um, for the historical purposes of it knows that, you know, if it's, if you're not allowed to be there, just don't go. I mean, you don't belong there. Yeah, don't go. Go online and look at pictures. Which is what I'm going to do immediately after this. (laughs) (laughs) But having said that, thank you for tuning in for our final episode of Ghosts of Christmas Past. Jamie, is there anything you want to add or do we want to have people on standby for what's to come in season two? Yeah, I think let's um, let's have people on standby. We will, um, I think maybe around New Year's, we'll do a little teaser for season two. It's coming up soon, but for now, just say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, and thanks again for joining us. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.